uh, the middle of the week and plenty on the radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. But I think if you would ask the regular person on the street here in Melbourne, they would prefer him be shipped out rather than play. But, but to watch him play come Monday, goodness, that would be uh, epic viewing. There's no excuse for not baking. Everybody can bake. Some people say, oh, I'm terrible at baking. I won't try it. It's been a disaster. Every person can make a brown bread, which they can. The party's over, Prime Minister. The only question is, will the British public kick him out? Will his party kick him out? Or will he do the decent thing and resign? And we'll start here on the live line and back to minimum pricing on alcohol. The new legal situation around selling cut price alcohol. Well, Joe spoke to shopkeeper Colm about his take on it and whether that might be a gimmick. A gimmick, Joe. It is a a gimmick. Mm, No, I wouldn't call it that. Okay, well, well, explain it to people and maybe they can make their own mind up. Go ahead. What we're doing is we have fantastic plastic glasses. 24 of them that were selling for 30 euros. Okay. And then you bring those to the counter and you pay for them. And you will receive a credit note for 47 euro, 34 cent. Okay. Which can, it's it's a credit note that can be used against certain products within the store. Uh-huh. And that's what we're doing at the moment. But the price of a slab is 47.34. Coincidentally, yes. So it is a gimmick. <laughs> It's what I've seen turned as a worker on you. Um, like I've, I've gone through the legislation, and all of this, these, all of this is derived from the, the, the Public Alcohol Act in 2018. Yeah. There were five strands on this, so we're down to the last one, which was the minimum unit pricing. So as it went along through January, <coughs> um, they prohibited mm-hmm. the use of loyalty cards and vouchers, and then they prohibited any type of link promotions or multibuys. Okay. So we're not doing any of that. We're issuing a credit note, which can be redeemed in store for certain products. What are those products? Um, it's anything except for single cans of beer, cider, four packs, any of that. It's not redeemed against that. But you can actually redeem it against a case of um, a full case of alcohol. No, but can I can I redeem it against a, a packet of uh, cornflakes? No, no. I'm glad you asked me that because okay. we have on the post we have down strict terms and conditions apply. The terms and conditions are posted throughout the store and it starts off that the credit note cannot be redeemed against and it says wine, spirits, grocery products, beverages, confectionery, hardware, a full range of products like that. So what can it be redeemed against? It could be redeemed against, we have fantastic mops here, spin mops for €47.34, we have aquabacks for €47.34 and we also have slabs of beer. Forty-seven euro, uh, But the thing about this, which you have highlighted, is the the forty-seven thirty-four, which is the new, now the new minimum price for Bulmers and Budweiser, whatever slabs. Um, all of that money at the moment, sorry, the profit in that goes. The, the, sorry, the price increase in that from last week goes to you, the retailer. So what you've done is you have forfeited. You forfeited the price increase, haven't you? No, I understand exactly what you're saying there, yeah. Joe. But in this instance, right, okay. since the minimum unit pricing was implemented last Monday, mm-hmm. we haven't sold a single slab of beer, ah, okay? Yeah, okay? And yes, our margin, there was an exponential increase in the margin, from which was always very small anyway, up to in the region of 45 and 50%, which anybody will be delighted with. But as a transparent, Joe, after a week of that, it was 50% of nothing. Okay, so you're saying the, the, the retailer's margin 
on a lot of alcohol because of minimum pricing and the, as, as you say the increase is going to the retailer not to the uh, HSE or whatever no, that's correct. No, that's correct. Uh, and you're saying that the, the, the margin thanks to the minimum pricing the margin jumped by up to 50% but as you say it's 50% of nothing because you weren't getting the sales no, that was the issue. The sales just declined completely. And yeah. I've looked at this across across Scotland and Wales where they introduced the minimum pricing long before we did. Scotland were the first in the world to do yeah, it. Yeah. And th- there was a decrease in sales of 8.8% and Wales had a decrease of 7.8%. And these were all totals it being a huge success. But what nobody actually flagged was there was an exponential increase in sales across within 60 miles within 60 miles of north of England, of the border of Scotland, and the same with Wales. So what I can see happening here, and from everything I've seen, people are just claiming they're going to travel to the north, and they have. I know that. We heard that all week. But, Colin, what is the reaction of your customers? Have you sold many slabs since this new... We have this morning. Uh, Well, no, we didn't. I haven't sold any slabs. I've sold a lot of plastic glasses, which, to credit notes, were redeemed for slabs subsequent to that. See, I have to be really careful, Joe, about the wording because you're not allowed to promote it, you're not allowed to say it. So, <laughs> but, I know. But I'm looking at, I'm looking at the Public Health Alcohol Act uh, 2018 Part 2, uh, alcohol products, uh, minimum price of alcohol products. Um, adver- anyone who advertises, promotes, or causes to be advertised or promoted the sale of... You know, I could end up in prison here. Adver- uh, advertises, <laughs> promotes... Our causes, that's why I'm not giving out the location. I can't be accused of sending people flocking to you. Advertisers <laughs> promotes or causes to be advertised or promoted. The sale of an alcohol product at a price that is below the minimum price of the alcohol product concerned shall be guilty of an offence. That's correct. That's if they're advertising alcohol or causing to be advertised. Okay. I don't believe the post that, that we did, Joe, actually, did. it just so happens that there are some alcoholic um, slabs in the background for €47.34. There's no mention on the post that you're under any obligation to do that. There are other products you can buy in the store for €47.34. And by the way, the 30, the glasses that you're selling yeah. for 30 quid that you redeem for a voucher, credit note, sorry, mm. a credit note for 47.34, which is the price of a, a slab of Bulmers or whatever. Um, how much are the glasses worth? I said the glasses in total are worth they're ergonomically designed aesthetically pleasing they're worth about six euros I have a nice margin on those and Joe asked Colm if any of the shops in the area were aware of his situation and now have you have you other shopkeepers in your sorry other grocery or off licences that are going to get annoyed with you my own view Joe if, if I saw this myself I would probably sit back, let somebody else at it, see what the actual repercussions are going to be before I would emulate it, if, the, yeah. if, if, the, if it was me. Um, I'm not sure if they will get annoyed if it's, if it's legal and it's, it's a way of, of... Like, it's a way of giving back value to the customers. <clears throat> it, like, it, it was a huge jump. And it gave us a phenomenal margin, but it's one that I haven't achieved here yet because nobody bought a case off me in seven days. And Amanda, did you, sl- did you sell slabs last night when you put the sign up? I did last night, yes. How many slabs did you sell for? Uh, I sold nine last night. But you didn't. Oh, you caught me there badly, Joe. You're right, I didn't. I rest my case, Your Honour. I, I didn't, Joe. Yeah, no, you're right, I didn't actually. That's Colm on the live line with Joe Duffy. 
And in the morning, things were getting a little more uncomfortable for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Here's Audrey Carvel from Morning Ireland. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson will face questions in the House of Commons today over the invite to a drinks gathering in the Downing Street Garden at the height of the first pandemic lockdown in May 2020. An email was sent to around 100 people by Mr Johnson's principal private secretary. Around 30 attended and several eyewitnesses reported seeing Mr Johnson and his wife Carrie Simmons there at two. There was a, that was at a time when one person could meet only one other person outside and socially distanced. On the BBC Newsnight programme last night, Tory peer Ros Altman said that if the Prime Minister broke the law, his position is untenable. Look, if there was a party, anyone who attended it was breaking the law. And if those who were attending and breaking the law include a prime minister, then obviously the position becomes untenable. That needs to be established. Ros Altman there. Well, we are joined this morning by former Tory MP and Attorney General for England and Wales, Dominic Grieve. Dominic Grieve, you're very welcome to the programme. Three questions, I suppose, for Boris Johnson. Was he aware of the gathering? Did he authorise the invite? Did he attend? Do you expect him to answer any of these questions today? I think he's going to be under very considerable pressure to answer them. There's Prime Minister's questions and he's going to be asked these questions repeatedly and attempt to hide behind the inquiry being carried out by Sue Gray uh, and to say that he's just going to push this into the long grass until she comes up with her report is, is not an acceptable uh, response because he knows whether he was at this event. He plainly does and he clearly knows all about this event. And I think that the public mood in this country is growing increasingly angry at what's seen as these prevarications on his part in answering perfectly reasonable questions and also facing up to his own responsibility. And it would be very hard for people to forget anyone who saw the DUP MP Jim Shannon in the House yesterday breaking down in tears when he talked about his mother-in-law dying alone at this particular point in 2020 when this was happening. Do you sense a a different mood perhaps among the Tory party in particular towards Boris Johnson now? I do. I I think this event can't be seen in isolation. Uh, There is a pattern of behaviour by Mr Johnson that goes on, has gone on throughout his time as Prime Minister and indeed long before he became Prime Minister, uh, where he seemed to be untrustworthy, to be seen to be incapable of complying with rules or believing that rules don't apply to him, and a tendency to lie uh, and dissemble when he gets into trouble. Uh, And I think this is probably the straw that's broken the camel's back. Uh, I think that there are many Conservative MPs who are deeply concerned about the impact of this on the party's standing and the government's standing. And it may be that Mr Johnson won't survive this. The difficulty is that Conservative members of Parliament uh, will be considering the difficulty and the trauma of getting rid of a leader and may take the view that they just themselves don't want to take a decision. But my feeling is this will get worse. and The longer it goes on, the more difficult it's going to become for everybody. Dominic Grieve talking to Audrey Carvel on Morning Ireland. Then later, Ryan Tuberty was also musing over events. Today, very interesting day across the water now listening to uh, the reports. Boris Johnson has had so many parties that one of the Labour MPs said yesterday regarding the investigation of the parties, maybe they should find out, talk about how many days they 
didn't have parties and work it that way because <laughs> they seem to have so many. And he's got himself tied up in so many knots of, uh, let's say, a web, shall we say, of intrigue that when it comes to the PMQs, as they call it today, Prime Minister Question Time today, it'll be very interesting to see how he's going to wriggle out of this one. Because if cats have nine lives, he's on about 13 or 14 for some weird reason. He's a particularly special type of Tory cat. Um, but watch her and see how he does. And if you thought politics was boring, tune in. Ryan Tuberty, then Claire Byrne spoke to Matthew Paris, former Conservative Party MP, and Conor McGinn, Labour MP for St Helens North. Conor, I'll start with you. Your party deputy leader, Angela Rayner, said Boris Johnson has lied to the British public. She said, I think this makes his position completely untenable. But what is the Labour Party going to do about this? Look, I think there are three component but linked elements to this, and this is why the British public are so angry. The first is the breaking of the rules and potentially the law. And we have to put this in the context of May 2020. It had only been a week when people were allowed to leave home for more than doing their groceries or daily exercise. You were only allowed to meet one other person outside and be socially distanced. But yet, at the heart of government, those who were making the decisions on uh, announcing those rules and bringing them into law, 40 people gathered for a party. And the second part of it then is the hypocrisy of that. But the third part of this, and this is the important component in relation to the Prime Minister and his position, is the lies. The Prime Minister has continually lied. We uh, saw him prevaricate, uh, uh, essentially say that, you know, not me, Gov, um, it happened, I wasn't there. You know, we know he was there. And so today, Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's questions will ask him the questions that the British public want the answer to, which is, yeah. were you there? Did you break the rules? And if you did break the rules and mislead Parliament and the country, are you going to go? But the reality is it doesn't really matter what the Labour Party do. You need his own. You need the Tories to abandon him and turn on him here. Well, in a fundamental sense, it does matter what the Labour Party do, Claire, because this is about honesty and integrity in public life. And it is completely unacceptable for the Prime Minister on a day when 330 people died in this country to break the law and break the rules and host a party in his home and in his office, then to lie about it and then to try and pin the blame on lower officials, something that he has done through his entire career. Look, you're right, though. You're right, though. The practicality of this in a political sense is like the Conservative Party. Yeah. So the question Conservative Party MPs have to answer today is, do they think this man is fit to lead their party, a great party with a long history? Is he fit to lead their party? But more importantly, is he fit to lead the country? That's the question they need to answer today. Well, let's hear one member of the Conservative Party who did come out yesterday in defence of the Prime Minister. Here's Conservative MP Michael Fabricant speaking to the BBC. Look, from the rules point of view, that's going to be decided by Sue Gray and the Metropolitan Police and we'll have to see what happens. What I'm trying to explain is that Boris and others felt sorry for people who are working long, long hours and they were simply spilling out from their own offices into a secure garden, which is an integral part of Number 10 Downing Street. And you know what? I'd rather have a Prime Minister who felt for his staff and all those hard-working people than some cold fish who really couldn't care at all about. Matthew Paris, does that wash with you? No, no. Uh, they weren't spilling out from their, their workplace. They were having a party. A hundred people were invited. 30 or 40 attended. Trestle tables were laid out. People brought their own bottles. It was a party. It was not a spilling out from a workplace. And there are plenty of other workplaces in Britain where people might have liked to spill out and 
have a few drinks. I, Michael Fabricant's remarks will not gain much traction, even within his own party. Mm. You, you said, and I think rightly, that from the point of view of the Prime Minister's survival, what matters is not what the country thinks. We, we know the country thinks it's appalling, nor what the Labour Party thinks. Um, we know what <laughs> they think it's appalling. It's what his own MPs think. And three or four have now said that if it transpires that he was at the party, remember, he hasn't yet said that he was, if it transpires that he was, uh, he should consider his position. And, and the leader of the, Tor the Tories in Scotland has said he should resign if he was at the party. Matthew Paris and Conor McGinn on Today with Claire Byrne. So by the afternoon, we had an answer from Boris Johnson. Here's Brian Dobson on the News at One. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has apologised for attending a bring-your-own-booze party in the Garden of Number 10 Downing Street during England's first COVID-19 lockdown in May 2020. Addressing the House of Commons this lunchtime, Mr Johnson acknowledged public rage over the incident but claimed the gathering could technically have been within the rules. The revelation about the Downing Street party follows other allegations of rule-breaking by Mr Johnson and his officials. In a statement to MPs, he admitted attending the gathering for around 25 minutes to, as he put it, thank groups of staff. Number 10 is a big department with the gardeners as an extension of the office, which has been in constant use because of the role of fresh air in stopping the virus. And when I went into that garden just after 6 on the 20th of May... 2020 to thank groups of staff before going back into my office 25 minutes later to continue working. I believed implicitly that this was a work event. But Mr Speaker, with hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. I should have found some other way to thank them. And I should have recognised that even if it could be said technically to fall within the guidance, there would be millions and millions of people who simply would not see it that way, people who suffered terribly, people who were forbidden from meeting loved ones at all, inside or outside, and to them and to this House I offer my heartfelt apologies. During subsequent exchanges, the opposition leader, Labour's Keir Starmer, called on the Prime Minister to resign. We've got the Prime Minister attending Downing Street parties, a clear breach of the rules. We've got the Prime Minister putting forward a series of ridiculous denials, which he knows are untrue. Yes. A clear breach of the ministerial code. Yeah. That code says ministers who knowingly mislead Parliament yeah. will be expected to offer their resignation. Yeah. 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 The party's over, Prime Minister. The only question is, will the British public kick him out? Will his party kick him out? Or will he do the decent thing and resign? Yeah. I, I just want to repeat that I think that the... Uh, right honourable gentleman, I, and I, I know that his, it is his ob objective and he's paid to try to remove me from office, uh, Mr Speaker, and I, I appreciate that and I, and I accept that. But may I humbly suggest to him uh, that he should, he should wait until uh, the inquiry has concluded. Uh, he should study it uh, for himself and uh, I will certainly respond as appropriate and, and I hope that he does. But in the meantime, uh, yes, Mr Speaker, I certainly wish uh, that things had happened differently on the evening of May the 20th, uh, Mr Speaker, and I apologise for all the misjudgments uh, that have been made, for which I take, Mr Speaker, full responsibility. Then Brian spoke to London correspondent Sean Whelan. 
so, Sean. We have an apology from Boris Johnson. Uh, he says, though, it was a, a working event. It shouldn't have happened, though, in hindsight, he accepts. And let's leave it, he says, to Sue Gray, the senior civil servant, to investigate all this and see what she comes up with. Looks like he's trying to tough it out. Is it working? Uh, well, we'll have to wait and see. But um, so far, no, it's not working um, for two reasons. One, he's now put himself in the hands of Sue Gray, this senior civil servant who uh, is uh, doing these investigations into the parties. We think there's about 12 of them now when you add in the uh, connected uh, uh, departmental parties that were going on, as well as various ones in Downing Street. Uh, but, you know, he's dependent on her saying, were you at a party? Yes, you were at a party. Did it break the rules? Yes, it broke the rules. Is this senior service servant going to say the Prime Minister broke the rules and therefore what? Uh, who knows? Mm. So he's in her hands now for the next couple of weeks. He's playing for time. Uh, obviously, he doesn't want to resign, obviously, uh, despite all the calls on him uh, from the uh, opposition parties. Although, as he said uh, during the exchanges in the House, it's their job to try and throw him out of office. Uh, but he isn't going to go on it. Uh, but his real problem is the invitation, the uh, email invitation sent out by his uh, principal private secretary, one of his closest aides in Downing Street, to this group of close on 100 people, inviting them to a social event, bring your own booze, was written down in the email. Mm. And it's very hard to construe that as a work-related event, which would have technically possibly placed it within the rules and you know you can stretch the technicalities even further and say look this was his own house and his own garden so if he was going into his own garden and having a drink he wasn't breaking the rules at the time but yeah I mean do people believe it it's stretching things it really is and there's a lot of unhappiness on his own backbenches. So does the event itself which as you say will be adjudicated on in due course by by Sue Gray, but there's also this other allegation, this charge laid at, at him by Keir Starmer, that he misled the House of Commons in earlier in earlier remarks that he made in relation to some of these lockdown events. Yeah, again, it's the twisting and the turning that is, is going to cause Boris Johnson the most problems here. And Keir Starmer, being a forensically minded former prosecution lawyer, indeed director of public prosecutions, he is setting out all kinds of man traps for Boris Johnson trying to catch him out and that means that the amount of political ground that Boris Johnson has to manoeuvre in gets smaller and smaller and smaller at every uh, Prime Minister's question time and every time he twists and turns when he finds himself caught in the barbed wire the barbed wire just gets tighter and tighter and you've got these opposition politicians pulling on the wire trying to tighten it all of the time so his room for manoeuvre is getting smaller and smaller all of the time and his own party backbenchers are just watching this, cringing in embarrassment mm. and thinking, how long can we go on with this? Well, well, that's a question I suppose a lot of people must be asking. How, lo- how long will they tolerate this? How long will they leave him as leader? Yeah, and, and that is the, the, the question. The answer to that is, where's the alternative? Uh, there's no readily apparent leader in waiting. There's nobody running an open campaign here at the moment. So uh, are they going to leave him there for a while longer? Hope that he can tough this one out. Hope that there's some kind of uh, magic rabbit that he can pull from that hat. And with one bound, our hero is once again free. He is uh, a great escape artist. He's managed to get out of so many other tight corners in his time. Uh, You should never discount uh, the the possibility that he could escape from this one as well. Mm. Events uh, might turn in his favour, which is why it makes sense from his point of view to play for time. Sean Whelan from the News at One with Brian Dobson.
And on Today with Claire Byrne, back to Djokovic in Australia. Here's Claire's interview with reporter Reid Butler. So we've another twist in the saga. Novak Djokovic released this statement just a few hours ago. What did he say in that? Where are the red flags? Yes, Claire, a lengthy statement. And he actually came clean in that statement with two major admissions uh, that aren't going to do him any favours as he fights to stay here in Melbourne and battling against deportation. Essentially, uh, he admitted that he was out and about in Serbia knowingly infectious. Uh, so he, uh, days after testing, uh, after developing uh, symptoms and getting tested, uh, he has been out and about despite knowing he had a private, uh, a positive test result, uh, mingling with others, engaging with the community, a journalist uh, for a, for an uh, interview for a magazine, uh, while he knew he was infectious, uh, which is the first big admission confession here that came about as a result of his statement this afternoon. The second uh, uh, admission was the fact that he did uh, uh, use false information on his declaration form to come into Australia. So obviously it has just been a saga here, the fact yeah. that Djokovic is here in Melbourne in the first place and now revelations that he uh, has said or a member of his team, he's claimed, on his behalf has said, uh, no, he hasn't, Djokovic hasn't had done any international travel ahead of his trip down under when in fact he had he been had. in Spain yeah. in the days prior. So, so what do you think the Australian immigration minister is waiting for now? Why doesn't he just deport him? Well, I, I've spoken to the Immigration Minister's office today and the, my understanding is they've been inundated with new documentation from the Djokovic camp today in relation to this statement. So uh, new evidence in, in some capacity and, and that is delaying the process. Uh, so uh, as the Immigration Minister and his team goes through uh, those documents, um, we're, we're not likely to, to hear a decision on this until at least tomorrow uh, Australian time. So it's in the evening now around 10 o'clock. Uh, so we're expecting a decision tomorrow tomorrow. And at this stage, I would say it's leaning towards deportation, Claire. It's not looking great for the world number one. Uh, there are source reports tonight that the government here in Australia is concerned that if they let uh, Novak Djokovic stay in Melbourne, it sets a dangerous, quote, dangerous precedent uh, for our border policy uh, going forward. So it is not looking good. There is confirmation the government is still preparing a case for deportation. And uh, if that is the decision, then it's just going to get messier from here. The government has got a bit of egg on its face over, over this scandal. It's just dragged on for days, made huge headlines, obviously, here in Australia and around the world. It's not a good look for them. And the idea of Novak Djokovic playing uh, for two weeks across the course of the Australian Open from Monday next week, uh, it's not a great look for them. It's an election year as well. Uh, so they're, they're, they're no doubt thinking yeah. very closely about what to do here. But I don't think it's looking good for Novak uh, Djokovic. It's just so tricky because there's no doubt about it, as you say, the federal government there has shipped some political damage on this. But there is nobody who doesn't want to see Novak Djokovic walk out onto that court to play in the Australian Open now after all of this. Well, I think the, the the vibe in Australia, in Melbourne in particular, is a very anti-Novak Djokovic. I would say it might be 80 to 80, 20 percent here uh, in terms of people wanting him to stay and, and, and wanting to leave. I think the majority of Australians... Uh, want him out is is the is the mood on the street here. They yeah, think that you, I, I, he's. I get that. I get that point, but the spectacle of it. Do, do you see what I mean? Oh, of, of seeing, absolutely. You know. uh, it would be a blockbuster. Uh, it would be blockbuster viewing, absolutely. Uh, and mm. and he's the favourite going in, of course. So there's a really good chance that he would win. Uh, so what a story that is. But uh, it, yeah, it would it would be fascinating to watch. But I think if you would ask the regular person on the street here in Melbourne. 
they would want. I think they would they would prefer him be shipped out rather than play. But but to watch him play come Monday, goodness, that would be uh, epic viewing. Reporter Reid Butler from today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, facing adversity and pursuing your dream, 20-year-old local radio presenter Connor McCauley has Duchenne muscular dystrophy and he was talking to Ryan Tuberty about living with his condition and not feeling defined by it. Do you mind if we go back to the beginning of your story? Would that be okay? Yeah, that's completely fine. Take it from the start, because for, 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 for the first, what, two or three years of your life, it was pretty pretty regular. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it was pretty regular. Um, it was sort of um, hard to, to understand what was sort of going on because my mom was actually bringing me to doctors because I, I couldn't really walk much. And when I did, I was, I was walking on my toes and I kept falling over. So she knew there was a problem. And for about a year and a half, she kept bringing me to see loads of people. And then at three and a half, I got the diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Now, I've heard of Duchenne muscular dystrophy only because of this job I have. And sometimes I might meet parents of, of, of a child with with DMD or I might meet somebody who has DMD. Um, so it's not completely unusual to me, but it would be to a lot of people, Connor. Um, and mm-hmm. with that in mind, can you uh, define it as best you can? Yeah, so Duchenne, it's a rare genetic disease that causes um, progressive weakness and loss of muscle mass. Okay. Which means what in, in, in day-to-day? It means um, that you struggle with various tasks um, day-to-day. And as you get older, um, you'll need to start doing more things such as um, taking heart medication. I think when you're a child and you have something like you know, a muscular dystrophy, um, that's one, one thing. But getting to school towards the end of um, primary school and heading into the secondary school, that, that's mm-hmm. a, that can be a very difficult crossroads for, for, for young people. Tell me about your, your world in this regard. So, yeah, um, when I was starting secondary school, um, my secondary school I went to was Klaustner Hinchna. Um, my parents in the school, to be honest, were very nervous about me. Um, I was the first ever student with Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy in the school, so... It was all sort of new to them. Um, they were all sort of nervous about me falling as I was at the time still walking. And really I could feel my thigh muscles were getting a lot weaker. Um, so try, trying to sort of do things like get up from a chair unassisted in a position was getting hard each day. But I, I didn't want to accept really any help. Um, I felt like I was sort of in a battle against everybody and I, I just didn't want anyone seeing me struggling. As at that time I really struggled to sort of speak about my illness. Um, after a few weeks in school, um, then I, I tripped and fell. And then after the fall, I, I felt sort of smothered by some of the school staff. Um, they couldn't let me do anything on my own in case I had a fall again and got badly hurt. So I, I understand they were just worried then. But at that time, at that age, I, I couldn't understand that. Um, but because of that, I sort of struggled to make new friends in secondary school. And, mm. and then I pushed um, away people I was friends with. Um, so I wouldn't sort of get asked questions. Um, and what were you what were you worried about in terms of? Does it come down to what, even what we were talking about earlier on? What does it come down to? Appearance, to being different, to your own confidence. What what was happening in your head? Yeah, it was it was pretty much down to appearance. Um, I took steroids from five and a half to ten and a half. So at the end of primary school, I, I had a lot of weight on me, and then all of a sudden, I. I got conscious about my appearance and I, I lost so much weight and everything and I think that's what it really was I think I just didn't know how to be myself um, I, I thought if I showed my disability I would be just stereotyped into a 
certain position I didn't want to be in. I, I just wanted to be Connor. And Connor described losing his ability to walk and using a wheelchair. I was walking till 17. A lot of people with my condition only walk from 8 to 12 years old. So I was really lucky in um, that perspective. Okay. And um, before that then, just to jump back a step, you were in third year junior cert. And it it strikes me as though that was a very, very, uh, that was a crossroads moment for you really, or certainly a, a peak of some sort. Yeah, by third year, to be honest, Ryan, um, I, I was a complete mess. I, I, I felt very close to a breakdown. Um, my psychologist, I, I sort of had since the age of six, was worried and sent me to get emergency therapy sessions. Um, by that point, I was really saying some very stupid things, like um, I was going to fail my junior cert exams on purpose, and I would say I wasn't going to be around much longer. And I, I really blamed everyone around me um, as my body was deteriorating. I was so angry, and I was just so scared. Uh, well, I can understand it because, you, I, I, and also you're looking at everyone in their flush of youth, you know, running around, doing everything. You, you must have been looking at them going, what, why me? What the hell happened there? Is that, what, is that the sort of thing that was going through your mind? Yeah, there was, there was a lot of envy for people doing what they could do, like sports and, and stuff. I, I would just be in school. I would, I'd be walking, but I wouldn't be able to do much while walking. I, that would be the only thing I'd be able to do. Like I was using the lift. I couldn't do stairs. Um, I had to sit out of PE. So it was it was really hard. Emergency counselling, you just mentioned that. That sounds serious. Yeah, um, I got emergency counselling at the end of third year um, because I, I couldn't cope with it anymore, everything going on. Um, also, with my condition, you do have, you can have things like uh, learning difficulties. So I had that as well. So I was going to resource classes um, and I, I wasn't really able to retain information. And um, I had dyslexia as well, so... That was really tough. I was talking to, I don't know if you're familiar with Charlie Bird, he's a friend and colleague of ours, and, and he was talking about uh, motor neuron disease um, uh, before Christmas. His greatest fear was a wheelchair. He was very honest about it. He said, look, I just don't want to be in a wheelchair. I, 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 I just don't want that to happen. He loves walking. He loves mountain climbing and so on. Um, and uh, he just he, he was just fearful of it and in a, in a very honest way. And I get the sense that when you were heading towards your 16, 17 years old and the walking was starting to deteriorate, you also had a pretty poor relationship with the prospect of a wheelchair. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I had I had a really poor relationship um, with the wheelchair as, uh, as a thing to use. Mm. Um, it was sort of actually, I broke my femur bone um, in fourth year. So it was around January, February that year. And that's what really brought me off my feet. Um, I, I tripped and fell on a wonky path and that was really the time that I had to sort of accept it and say here look the wheelchair is going to be a part of me and I have to use it there was no longer this thing of where I could hide it because my, my leg that I broke was, was too weak And the leg break ended up changing Connor's state of mind Because of that experience and because my mental health improved I sort of started to accept my body is, is going to keep getting weaker but I, I've um, gotten where I am today because of that Break. Okay, okay, and and in terms of what you're doing with your own life, what what did you study, or when you finished school, ultimately, and and everything? Yeah, I went to a PLC college. I did P, uh, film production for a year. Oh, good. Um, now I'm actually working at an accountancy firm, um, about sixteen hours a week with great employers who actually hired me after hearing my life story on LMFM Brilliant. at the start of COVID, which was great. 
But well, but to be honest, yeah, it's it's not what I want to pursue a career in. So currently, I'm doing a lot of courses on the side. And um, funny enough, I'm actually doing a radio course. So good man. Um, that's what I sort of want to do. Um, I'd love to be a music specialist. Definitely, that would be something I'd really want okay, to do. Okay, great. Well, keep pursuing um, it. Keep pursuing yeah. it because that's a keep knocking on the doors. It'll open eventually, and that's a good. That's a good thing. So you're yeah. you're 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 you know you're keeping the dream alive, as the song says, and you're 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 ambitious and ready for the world. Of course. Of course, yeah. Um, um, you're also, I noticed the, the, you're doing a bit of work with the Irish Wheelchair Association. Yeah, I am. Um, the work I've sort of been doing with IWA has been very fun. Um, at the start of 2021, I was asked to put my name down for the Oliver Murphy Youth Leadership Programme, yeah. which then me and 11 other people were chosen to train to be IWA leaders. Um, the program was was rolled out online in I think it was in partnership with Carlo Regional Youth Service, um, and it lasted ten weeks. But the main area of focus in the program um, was to support us with leadership skills that may benefit us on um, a personal and social base, social basis. Okay, and, and I pre- presume part of that is to get schools talking about wheelchairs and to normalise conversations and attitudes. Well, that was a different program I did, but the the program for schools is actually called the Daisy Program. Yeah. Um, that's what their plan is. So due to receiving the Toy Show funding, um, IWA is, is working on an education program for teachers, children and parents, favorite true skills. This is great. I mean, that that's uh, the whole point of the Toy Show fund uh, from people listening who, who donated generously is to hear a story just like that. Uh, that that's a tremendous result. Uh, delighted to hear that. And it'll hopefully change attitudes among young people, which is what the money was for. So that's good news. So life is, life is good, all told, Connor. Yeah, life life is good at the moment. Um, a lot of still my health struggles are still there, and I do struggle a little bit with my mental health. But what I've been able to do over COVID, um, I, I actually started up on um, up an Instagram page at Start COVID, sort of tell my own personal story with my posts, but also to help raise awareness for others with my conditions or similar types of disabilities to mine. Um, and just inspire people and just show people life isn't that bad. Connor McCauley from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, repeat offenders. Burglars are more inclined than other criminals to re-offend after prison. And now there's calls for mandatory sentences. Now, a government senator is to bring forward proposals for repeat robbers to automatically receive a minimum mandatory sentence of 10 years in jail. It follows a spate of burglaries in the Galway City area in recent weeks, with Garthy investigating whether serial burglars are behind the crimes. Legal figures question the effectiveness of mandatory sentencing, but victims and politicians want to crack down on repeat offenders. Well, our reporter is in Galway for us this morning. Barry, what exactly has been happening there recently? Yes, good morning, Claire. Looking out across Galway Bay here, what a beautiful sight it is here this morning. Uh, but far from the image which has greeted some homeowners around here uh, when returning to their properties in recent weeks to find them raided and ransacked uh, behind me back out towards uh, Galway City, through the city, out into the county, towards Carnmore and Clare Galway. There were 14 burglaries in the 10 days before Christmas. Uh, if I look along the left here, the bay here, out towards uh, Ornmore, in 
incidents around there too within the past three weeks and others as well in Galway City and Garthi and look they're keen to tell me that there's been no uh, spike of the same period last year but at the same time it's believed a line of inquiry one of their, their main lines of inquiry is whether repeat robbers are behind this latest spree and a strong suspicion that the houses uh, in the aforementioned areas that they were uh, targeted and may have been scouted out in advance maybe not even by the robbers themselves uh, rows and groups of houses targeted in sequence often between five and eight o'clock when they are unoccupied but the, the focus the talk the debate here in the aftermath uh, of those burglaries has focused in uh, on repeat offenders and this against a backdrop where Ireland has higher rates of recidivism compared to other European countries the most uh, recent statistics we have to hand from the Central Statistics Office these covering 2018 and they note how those released from those released from prison for burglary related uh, uh, offences were most likely to re-offend within three years of being let out. Ah, that's very interesting in and of itself but for people to come home to a house that has been burgled is a horrible thing and it affects everybody in the household and you've been speaking to those who've experienced that. What have they been telling you? Yeah, Anne and her family uh, live along a main road in the Oranmore area and they were burgled the Monday before Christmas. And never in my wildest dreams did I think that was going to happen to us. You hear about it on the TV and the radio, they're statistics, but now I suppose I'm one of the statistics out there and it's never going to change. Couldn't believe that somebody was actually in our house. I suppose when I entered the house initially, I thought it was a prank. But then as I started going around, I then, to my horror, discovered we were broken in. What did they end up taking away from you? I had a lot of Christmas presents brought, and I suppose they were easy targets because they were all there in bags for them to take. And they took jewellery, and the jewellery that was taken will not be replaced. Some of it have sentimental value. They were handed down from my mother, some of them, and some of the items I had myself, I have them since I was 16 or 17. This was a crime that took place in lightning speed time, and that's particularly concerning for you because you left the house at tea time, you come back not not too long later yeah. and the place has been burgled. Gone for possibly less than two hours and within the two hours the house had been broken into. Frightening part was I came home after two minutes of their leaving the property. That's how tight it was in relation to me returning to the property and we were the last house from talking to the guards that was done that night. At the time, it didn't seem too daunting, but when I think about it more, yes, it was. I could have walked in on them. Possibly six properties done that night, but they did more properties the day before, the day after. So I, I, there was quite a number of properties done in the local area and we're all within the motorway, so easy access. It's very daunting to see that somebody has broken into your, your safe place and that's now tarnished and it's something I have to deal with and move on with. And Barry spoke about the idea of mandatory sentencing. Well, Fianna Fáil Senator here in Galway City, Ali Crow, he wants to crack down and he's to bring forward proposals uh, in the Shannon for a minimum mandatory sentence of 10 years for anyone with a prior conviction for burglary without any judicial discretion to alter this. Here's what else he told me. It's just gone to a new low and I have huge concerns and what, what needs to happen here is, you know, there needs to be a mandatory minimum sentences for these horrific crimes. An increase to a mandatory sentence of 10 years will automatically see burglary reduced. For example, last week in Cork, just last week on the 6th of January, a man was convicted with 80 previous convictions. That's right, 80 previous convictions and he was given a 10-month jail sentence for breaking into a home. Now, what message is that sending out? The statistics show that 75% of the burglaries are carried out by people that have been convicted in the courts 
that people have carried out these burglaries on multiple occasions. So what I would be calling for is for a 10-year minimum mandatory sentence for multiple offenders. But how sure are you that this idea would actually work, that it would prove to be a sufficient deterrent? There's 25% of the, of the criminals that are actually causing 75% of the burglaries. So naturally, if you have a mandatory sentence of 10 years, automatically it won't solve all the problem, but it'll be one of the issues that will reduce it significantly. Currently, that the time is not fitting the crime. There's gangs going around, they're organised, they do four, five, six houses on a night. These are the people that need the mandatory sentences. Ollie Crow and Barry also spoke to experts about mandatory sentencing. Well, look, this is a politically popular uh, proposal. Often, if you rewind the clock to the general election campaign of this time two years ago, mandatory sentences for knife crime, uh, that was something that was proposed. But yeah, legal experts, uh, they say mandatory sentences are counterproductive. They argue that uh, sentences, uh, even for burglary, are more severe anyway at uh, these times, following uh, recent judgments in the courts. And they also say they're unjust because they don't take account of exceptional circumstances. Now, others, they say more of a focus is needed on rehabilitation programs. Again, CSO figures show how 80% of those incarcerated before the age of 21 re-offend within three years of their release. Now, Molly Joyce, she's a barrister. She's also deputy director of the Irish Penal Reform Trust. Here's what she told me. Such mandatory minimum sentences are not actually going to reduce reoffending, um, and that's because you know the argument around mandatory minimum sentences is that it will deter people from committing crimes again, or, or, or indeed it will you know deter people from committing a crime in the first place. And um, but there is really a very significant lack of evidence to show that that is actually the case. And I think if you if you think about it practically, you know that presupposes that a person who is about to commit an offence will actually stop and think uh, and indeed know what the likely um, uh, punishment for that offence is going to be and that that will then stop them from committing an offence. And that's not how people operate and that's not how a lot of people who end up committing offences, often in you know circumstances where they're desperate, you know, maybe addiction issues, mental health, that's not how they operate and that's not the kind of thing that they're thinking about. So, you know, this idea that simply changing the law is actually going to stop people from offending it's, it's not borne out by the evidence and, and really from a common sense point of view it doesn't really make sense. It's so so how then you're, you're aware of the situation in Galway um, how then w- yeah. would you propose uh, to stop these repeat offenders uh, if they are there? I think what we need to do is to focus on the underlying causes of offending, which we know in, our, in the Irish Penal Reform Trust are often related to poverty, addiction, mental health and trauma and, you know, really social issues. So we need to look at uh, those factors and we need to think about trying to, first of all, institute, I suppose, a greater reforms across the system to address those issues, but also then to look at the supports that a person receives when they are in prison to help them rehabilitate and move away from crime. And and again, perhaps most importantly, to look at the supports they receive when they are leaving prison, when they're being released, to ensure that, you know, they have somewhere to go to, they have stable accommodation, they have support for their addiction and mental health um, problems. Molly Joyce talking to Barry Lenehan from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, Frank's story. Joe was looking at the prescription of the drug OxyContin. OxyContin uh, features in this TV series Dope Sick. It's uh, 
an incredible scandal in the United States. It was being Oxycontin as a painkiller. Uh, it's a highly addictive, though. This was never, this was denied by the uh, Purdue company when they first marketed it back at the end of the last century, the 1990s. But it's ruined many communities in the United States because of its addictive quality, because of its quick hit. And uh, we asked yesterday, were people in Ireland uh, prescribed Oxycontin and what was the effect it had on them? And uh, we've been hearing from people ever since. And 90% of them so far are saying they did not uh, like the effect it had on them and they did their did their best as far as they could as quickly as possible to get off this addictive uh, opioid, which is as cheap as chips. Frank, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Did you watch this uh, TV series, Dope Sick, about OxyContin? I did, yes. And what was your reaction to it? Well, first of all, it upset me greatly, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, I found it very hard to watch because it brought me back to what I call my bad years. And that was when I was first put on that by a hospital in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was attending pain management. Okay. I was sent to them by my GP. And after a while with the pain management, they were just, there seemed to be no management as such other than prescribing drugs. Oxycontin. Oxycontin. And then, uh, not, not immediately. But then, after a short while, a group of us attending the clinic, I would say probably about 10, we were advised by the consultant at the time to go to this dentist who was working with him. And that's what really resonated with me at, the, uh, at watching the, the, the Dope Sick series, that they used the, a, a dentist in that series as well. And what? the dentist was the one that he told us that he would guide us on to how we should take this drug. Now, he put us on a small amount to start off, but he gave us no indication, never mentioned anything about addiction, none whatsoever. And it, it was increased then, and after a number of years, I reckon I was on it probably five or six years. Wow. And I was totally, I didn't realise it, but it had taken over my brain. It had warped me. I was a very sick man with pain at mm-hmm. the time. I was following an accident, a car accident that I ended up this way. And I got extremely violent with my family. And only for I have the best family you could ever have around you. Mm-hmm. And it hurts me even talking about it now. Um, only for them, I would be dead and gone a long time ago, 20 years ago. Because It took great courage. I didn't know I was hooked on this stuff. I didn't know it was addictive. I just kept taking it. That's Frank. And then Dr. Derek Cawley called Joe. Um, I've been listening with interest uh, over the lunchtime about these issues, Joe, and I just want to make a couple of comments, if that's okay. Of course, yeah. The first thing is, Joe, there are massive frustrations here expressed by the patients as expected and as is uh, understandable because, Joe, the pressure on our health system in mm-hmm. Ireland currently is absolutely massive. There's yeah. massive fr- uh, frustrations with that, both the public system and the private system, uh, Joe. And, and with that lack of access, uh, the patients are frustrated because they don't have the ability to access the appropriate diagnostics mm-hmm. and, and furthermore, understand that diagnosis. Um, and certainly, like I deal with back pain, chronic back pain okay. all the time. Wow. And, and, and I see people who, are, who become addicted to these medications because of, the, of, of how long they're, yeah. they're, they're looking for answers. 
And a GP who, who is often very much placed in a position whereby they've tried everything. They've tried to get other medications. They've tried to access the diagnostics and the specialist treatment. And, and there's, there's other aspects to this that we should be aware of as well. First, the second of all, the patient education aspect of this huge. We've loads of very good support systems in Ireland now, and multidisciplinary approach whereby we get physiotherapists mm-hmm. or sports therapists or occupational therapists involved. We also cannot forget, Joe, the non-medical measures. And I don't necessarily mean tablets, but also the fact that there are non-medical things that a person can use for chronic pain, you know, in terms of tenzogenes or, you know, hot water bottles or, or acupuncture mm. or any of these things. They're not particularly proven to be of significant benefit on their own. But using that collective approach, they are also a treatment that should be considered, you know. And, and, and we have to remember as well that there's so many online resources some of them obviously are not vetted and are not as, qualified. As, and as, as we heard yesterday, Derek, um, Dr. Crowley, p- people were uh, sourcing OxyContin online from India, of all places. Joe, that, that doesn't surprise me. People are trying to find a solution. Dr. Derek Crowley on the live line with Joe Duffy. And in the morning, picking up a new skill for 2022. This one I can vouch for as a great way to relax and keep calm. Baking, the smell of fresh bread greeting you in the kitchen is a beautiful thing. An expert, Anne-Marie Dunn, was talking to Claire about the beginner's guide to baking, starting with... Morning goods. Morning goods are traditionally goods that were produced in the morning to be eaten in the morning. They weren't really to be tied over to the next day because they are best straight out of the oven or just after they cool down. So the likes of your scones, your brown bread, your soda bread, your soda farls, um, even into there now comes muffins, croissants, all of that type of um, early morning products that you would expect to go in either to your local bakery to buy, to consume in the morning and you won't really be bothered with them in the afternoon. So um, they that's where they got their name as morning goods. So there was something sort of uh, the bakeries needed to have done early to have on the shelves as soon as they opened up and expect to be gone by lunchtime. Now some of those items that you mentioned the pastries in particular can be tricky enough but when it comes to things like brown bread Very simple. Everyone, a lot of families have their own recipes Absolutely. but easy to get right once you know what the basics are. Absolutely and you know there's no excuse for not baking. Everybody can bake. Some people say oh I'm terrible at baking, I won't try it, it's been a disaster. I, my firm belief is start young, get the, get the kids involved and children love baking. And if every person can make a brown bread, which they can, some people have a, a, a phobia or a fear phobia about it. It is the easiest thing if you make a simple stir, mix together, throw into a, a loaf tin and bake it off. You need the minimum amount of equipment. You need scales. You need your ingredients, of course. You need a mixing bowl, a spoon or a spatula and a loaf tin. And I think where the fear became um, was watching your mother years ago when you used to make the traditional type of soda bread where you had to knead it very carefully or else it was tough and bound or was cracked or it didn't bake properly or you didn't know when it was baked. And I think that became a fear for people where now um, I make this brown bread every day I actually brought you one in Claire this morning oh, I made this morning threw it together I was getting the lunches together this morning and um, 
anybody can make it. And you know, I can honestly say down to a school going child who wants to learn, if you become a learning curve, you can teach them how to weigh up and do their maths. They can actually stir it together so easily because it's the simple basic ingredient. Will you, will you run, run us through yeah, your brown bread My brown bread. Well, this one I find quick and easy. Um, it's self-raising flour. I have put up all of the recipes on the website, so I won't go through the, the amounts. But basically, your self-raising flour, your um, uh, wholemeal flour, salt, baking powder, bread soda, and you sieve them all together in a bowl or mix them together and then stir together then. I use a a hazelnut yoghurt, but if there's nuts, allergies in the house, you can actually use a natural yoghurt. But using a natural yoghurt, there's no sugar in it. So I would put one teaspoon of sugar into your mixture if you're using a natural yoghurt. Um, It just helps with the colouring of the bread and the baking. You're not using buttermilk? You're using yoghurt? Not using buttermilk. I'm using yoghurt instead because I think it's easier. Sometimes people always have a yoghurt in the fridge and you can use it for other things where buttermilk if you buy the leash you may not make it every day and then it goes off so I find using the yoghurt and it's less sour as well some people don't like the sourness of a, um, a brown soda bread which was the traditional flavour brown soda bread but again people don't like the reaction and that comes from the reaction of the baking powder and I think with morning goods you're talking about the type of variation as well so with this this recipe I'm using natural yoghurt instead of the um, buttermilk but it's um, going to be still aerated in the traditional manner. It doesn't make it heavy. It doesn't make it heavy. It's really light and if you just mix together your liquids in a jug make a well where your dry ingredients have been sieved together put in your liquids stir it together and you doesn't even have to take care. A good stir together, it's actually quite sticky and wet, into a greased loaf tin. I sort of spread it out with a fork to give a nice rough texture on top. You can sprinkle seeds on top of it. You can put seeds or additions into that mix as, as well, if you wish. And into a hot oven. The secret is having your oven preheated, really hot. I preheat the oven about 220 degrees centigrade. Oh, okay. But as soon as I put my um, bread into the oven, I turn it back to 195 45 minutes, out it comes, perfect all the time. Anne-Marie Dunn from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself, till next time.